Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Crypto and Muay Thai podcast. I'm your host, Chris Brookins. I'm super excited to welcome our special guest today, Coleman Mayer. He is the head of business development at Origin Protocol. Uh, Coleman, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, it is my pleasure. It is my pleasure to have you. Um, so for those who may not know, um, why don't you just start off by giving just a quick background of yourself and a natural sort of like segue into how you found um, yourself in this wild world of digital assets. Sure. Um, I guess quick, quick background. Uh, I studied math in university. Um, I was always into online communities. Uh, so I think back in 2014 on Reddit, like Dogecoin was a big thing. Like <laughs> people would tip each other and, you know, make memes and stuff like that. And it wasn't something I took super, super seriously, but that was kind of my introduction into cryptocurrencies. Um, fast forward a few years later, like 2016, 2017, um, I noticed that things were picking up a little bit of steam. Like, you know, there's some real serious money like being uh, injected into the, the ecosystem. So, I mean, of course, that, that's usually what makes people notice, you know, like when there's like a little bit of a bull market or whatever. So I started becoming much more active uh, around 2016, 2017, uh, trading, going to meetups, uh, stuff like that. Got you. Got you. So 2016, 17, you're going to meetups. Um, what at that particular point, did you have a general like feel or flavor? You're like, okay, I want to get involved in this space, but I don't know in which particular capacity. So, um, you know, myself, I don't have, I don't have a technical background. Daniel Kim, uh, head of revenue from SoFox doesn't have a technical background, uh, but still figured out a way to participate in this like growing space. So at that time you're like, all right, I see this is picking up steam, you know, probably even investing a little bit. Did you have a general idea? You're like, I want to get involved in this particular area or at that point, was it just still so new and exciting that you're just trying to get uh, exposure in any way possible? Uh, I think it was a couple things like, you know, I was, you know, a true believer in cryptocurrencies and, you know, I, I believe in the mission, like why, you know, they came to existence. So that was, it was a, a personal interest to me, just like intellectual academic interest. Also, I was investing and trading, so there was a financial interest. Um, I did, you know, I have a, a little bit of development skill and I did study math, um, but I wouldn't, you know, I didn't go at it as a, as a technical person or a developer, really. I was more just trying to learn as much as I can. Um, trading some, you know, you know, Bitcoin or shit coins or whatever you call them. Um, and, and then when the ICO craze started, like that was interesting as well. You know, there's so many new projects uh, with grand promises and you're talking about how they're going to change the world. Um, it was just a really exciting, like, I, I, for context, I'm from San Francisco and I was living in San Francisco during this time. So that was kind of like the mecca of cryptocurrency um, hype or whatever and activity in the United States. So like the meetups, went from like once a week or two times a week and pretty small to like gigantic uh, events where there's like 200 people like waiting to get in and full capacity standing room only and they were happening like every day so it, it was a real exciting thing to be a part of and i was you know when there's that much excitement you know when it's a huge bull market and things are really frothy like you're just looking for different opportunities like you know how you can 
possibly benefit or, or learn. So I, I was, it was a pretty general like thing for me. Like I was just interested in it generally. I wasn't going into it trying to, you know, get a job or anything like that. It was kind of like an accident. Got you. Got you. Yeah. I mean, talking about that, it's like whenever, where there's smoke, there's usually fire and just sort of like hearing your experience of seeing just the local meetups grow and then eventually the interest. And then obviously over the most recent years, we're just seeing um, not just a bunch of, you know, capital uh, from institutions sort of flood in, not just from a venture capital side, but gradually from more and more of a traditional um, allocator perspective, but also like a brain um, drain as well, you know, pulling in from more and more sectors just because it's getting more and more popular. So that must have been a very, very exciting time. And I can kind of like see it. I've spent some time, I've lived out in San Francisco. So like I'm seeing sort of like um, a little bit of that experience in my mind too. Yeah. I mean, San Francisco is already where, you know, the smartest people in America go to disrupt things and build companies. Um, so it was like really good, I guess you could call it like social proof that a lot of really, really smart people, like from engineers to technologists, venture capitalists, were going to these meetups and we're talking about these big ideas. So it was, um, it was, it gave it a lot of credibility and everyone was excited. Got you. Got you. That, that makes total sense. So how did you end up finding your way to origin? So at this point in the story, you know, you're a true believer, um, I'm, I'd be curious to know like why you sort of like truly believe in the value proposition. I, I do as well. Um, but each and every single person kind of like has their different angle that they kind of come from it. It might be interesting for the reader or for the listeners to sort of hear about that. But also at this point, like you're just excited, you're believing in the mission, you're trading. So how did you eventually sort of get linked up uh, at Origin Protocol? You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, it goes back to San Francisco being such a tech town. Um, you know, I got interested in cryptocurrency. I started posting about it on like social media or whatever. And then I started to find out like a lot of my friends were also beginning to dip their toes. So it was a lot of people already knew, um, getting involved in crypto. And one of those people happened to be Matthew Liu, who was one of the co-founders of Origin Protocol. Uh, he was a friend for a few years and I saw that he was doing, um, an ICO, like his own project. So I started to read about it. And I, you know, I told him, hey, I'm super active in meetups. Like, you know, I'm trying to network all the time um, in this industry. Like any, anything I could do to help out would be great. And I saw that there was a, uh, a job posting for a business development role, like a junior business development role. So, you know, I, I, I was an investor like in origin and, you know, I had a vested interest in um, wanting to see it succeed. It was my friend's project. So I kind of just threw my hat in the ring and they gave me like a, you know, short trial period and things went well. So I got picked up full time. Yeah. I, I mean, so I, I'm, I'm a biz dev guy myself. So whenever I was out in San Francisco, I was with a, I was with an analytics startup, um, within the water space, but like handling biz dev there. And so I completely like see, um, like that mentality of, of you, like being able to use that particular background to, to gradually work your way into um, not just this space more full-time than obviously believing in, but also a project that you've got a vested interest as well. So super, so super smart, but obviously like, you know that already because it's worked out quite well for you for, yeah, go ahead. And sorry to interrupt, but honestly, no, no, no. like the big, the big thing was, it's just like hustle and passion. Like if you, 
if you're really passionate about the industry and you're willing to put in work, like, I don't think, you know, I didn't have a, I, I didn't work at any tech companies before Origin Protocol, so I didn't have like a typical startup background. Uh, I did, you know, go to, you know, a good school and studied math or whatever, but I don't think that was relevant at all in me getting hired. I think it was just, I was passionate about the industry and I, you know, worked really hard during the trial period. I think that, that was one of the other things that was so exciting about crypto. Like you had these like 19 year olds sometimes like, you know, becoming, you know, the leaders of huge projects. I mean, Vitalik and Ethereum, um, people, people in, in the crypto industry were less dependent on these kind of like social cues and like branding things like, Oh, did you go to Stanford? You know, you know, did you come from like a hot startup or whatever? It was more like a wild west and like a marketplace of ideas kind of thing. So that, that was really appealing to me as well, coming from, you know, not the most traditional tech background. Got you. I mean, you took the word straight from my mouth, hustle. Like that's what I was thinking in my mind. And, and you said it 100%. I mean, as a biz dev guy or sales guy, it comes down to hustle and you get that additional edge whenever there's passion um, tied to it. Do you feel like, the space is still kind of like that where it's not as beholden to sort of like the old, uh, the old way of thinking, like you were talking about, it's like, all right, well, you know, what sort of hot startup did you dump out of? Did you have an exit? You know, are you from Stanford? Are you from MIT or anything like that? Uh, do you, do you still feel like the space um, is a bit more inclusive in that way? Or is it gradually um, kind of like getting swept up under the standard uh, San Francisco, or I guess I should say uh, tech startup mentality. I think it goes in cycles. Like definitely in the early days up until like maybe 2014, 2015, like most people involved in Bitcoin and crypto were like either anarchists or like hardcore, like Austrian economics people or libertarians. Mm -hmm. um, a, a lot of the Occupy Wall Street people got interested. Um, so I think it was much more, it, it starts much more fringe, these cycles and much more about ideology and in that kind of environment, like it attracts, you know, non people from non-standard backgrounds. So those people do really, really well. But then once the bubble starts forming, I think, you know, venture capital starts to take notice. I mean, to be fair, there was like some some prominent venture capitalists were early to the cryptocurrency space, but I think most of the VC herd joined um, once it was apparent that there was like this huge bubble and like everyone else was talking about it. So I think they're usually kind of latecomers to the, to the party in crypto. And you saw that in like 2016, 2017 venture capitalists were joining the space like more and more and they joined like really, really big in 2018 and then it kind of crashed. So they were kind of late to the party. And I feel like um, things reverted back to the way they were before. And you're seeing this now with DeFi. Like DeFi is the hot new trend. It's, the, it's kicking off a new cryptocurrency bubble. And like half the thought leaders or whatever uh, on Twitter for DeFi are like anonymous cartoon avatar, or anime avatar people posting like memes and you know using coarse language and all this stuff. So you're seeing like this cycle repeat itself where it's kind of like these, you know, fringe people, weird people, like anonymous developers, uh, ideologues, you know, doing like, you know, doing something like a, a fair launch of a coin where they don't keep any of it for themselves. There's no investors and they just release into the wild. You're seeing that now in DeFi 
And then now you're seeing uh, venture capital, different funds starting to take notice and getting really excited about it. So I think you're, we're at the beginning of another one of these cycles where it goes from kind of like the true believers and then the, you know, the in institutions or professional people come in a, a little bit later. Yeah, venture capitalists, I mean, they're not stupid. So whenever they see uh, a lot of money to be made, they're going to start coming in um, in in whatever particular capacity. So just like you said, it it kind of starts with the true believers, um, and then eventually it'll matriculate over into the people that have less of a vested interest and more just there to make a buck because they see all the money um, that's being made. I mean, at the end of the day, that is their job. So they're not stupid, and they typically do it very well. At least the ones that are at the highest level. Um, you mentioned. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to follow. Like, I don't, I don't want to bad mouth like venture capitalists and say that they're <laughs> they come in super late and they're just trying to make money. I think part of that is you know the criteria or restrictions of doing their job. Like they they can't you know a lot of them could not invest in some anonymously founded like uh, fair launch crypto. Like it's difficult for them to invest in like the early stages of the bubble because it, things are so fringe and weird that it's it's kind of like a constraint that they're working with that they have to come in a little bit later. Like their, their LP is going to be like, what are you doing? If you, yeah. if you're investing in some random thing. So I think it's, it's just, it's natural. It's not really, you know, it, I think some of it has to do with ideology and, you know, uh, values, but some of it has to do with just the nature of, you know, venture capital. Like you, you just can't invest in anything like wild west. No, 100%. I mean, I'm not a venture capitalist. So I mean, you could you could bash them all day long. I, I really don't I really don't give that much. Of a I, I have a lot of friends who are <laughs> VC. So I don't, don't want to say like, they're always late to the party. They're always late to the party. They're vultures, you know, just classic parasitic type investors. No, I, I obviously VCs, you know, sort of serve a purpose within the ecosystem. But I think you hit the nail on the head. It's just constraints at the end of the day. And, and you saw kind of like that switch up with Andreessen, where they they adjusted the structure to be able to take more of an aggressive stance or play more aggressively within the digital asset space. And it was because of those sort of like legacy um, constraints that you were talking about from a venture capital perspective. Um, and, you know, you've been seeing that still uh, from more of a traditional allocator perspective, even whenever you're just talking about Bitcoin. That's why Grayscale is has been just been blowing up because they're able to package something in a way that is within the specific set of parameters that either high net worth individuals or institutional capital allocators, quote unquote, can actually um, throw money behind and not have to worry about custody and, you know, and all this other stuff uh, that they need to eventually check these boxes in. Um, you mentioned DeFi, and I think I'd be remiss if we just didn't talk about that for a brief moment before we discuss origin. Um, how do you feel about DeFi? I, I completely agree with you that it is 100% the hottest topic um, in this market right now, and it's obviously driving. I think Bitcoin gives the blessing in, in everything that happens in terms of price appreciation in this market still to this day. So the fact that Bitcoin is still going up and is in a bull market right now is given the blessing to the rest of the market. But in terms of price appreciation and hype and exuberance and bringing in more and more brain talent, uh, DeFi squarely leads. So how do you feel about that? Um, yeah, I agree with everything you said. I think DeFi is great. Um, it reminds me of the ICO bubble, except that this time it's based off of, you, know, like you have to have a real product, like a real working product in DeFi to get noticed. A lot of the projects that 
you know, had, had their tokens like explode in, in price action have been around for a few years, like Compound or Uniswap. Um, so it's, it's a much better version of a bubble than the, you know, 2017, 2018 ICO bubble was because that was, you know, most of that was just vaporware. A lot of projects just had a white paper and, you know, you see some of them have not even released anything since, even though they did like monster fundraises. So I think DeFi embodies a lot more of uh, the real promise of cryptocurrency. Like a lot of these projects are either self-funded or had a small fundraise. Um, they've been working on their product uh, for many years and now they're only starting to release tokens and these tokens actually serve a purpose. Like people are excited about uh, DeFi governance tokens because they actually have, have value and people care about, you know, the protocol that, that they govern. Yeah, it's a natural sort of evolution, like you're sort of talking about where uh, in 2017, it's just exuberance, it's excitement, essentially based upon a promise and no one necessarily cares or wants to care at that point because everybody's making money because the ICOs are, are being pumped and pumped and pumped. So no one really cares until the ultimate crash. And then, you know, where you're at right now, I think is sort of phase two or, or 2.0, um, where there's actually a legit team behind it that has more careful thought. There's more product, uh, actual technology behind it. And they're actually going after a verified, a, a, a semi-verified um, use case or product market fit. I think for me, DeFi, the big question is obviously some of the things that are being pumped right now, you know, in terms of band and Kava, um, it, 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 it's not validated. I, I guess at the end of the day, valuation is just what individuals agree on or what a market agrees on. So I guess it is worth that at, at the moment. But for me, it doesn't merit that um, in a variety of ways, but it is going after, you know, sort of a use case that I think ultimately um, has the ability to be quite disruptive. I'm just not sure if um, we just haven't seen it verified in practice just yet, whether or not the technological uh, capabilities are up to snuff currently um, to actually be able to make this a verified scalable solution. But it's super, super early just in digital assets in and of itself. You figure Bitcoin is only 10 years or 11 years old. Um, so some of these projects are in very, very early stages. So I'm bullish in theory, super on DeFi. I just think in practice, um, there's still going to be some bumps ahead that are going to need to get smoothed through. Yeah, you know, and a lot of the excitements uh, about DeFi is with liquidity mining, which is essentially like an airdrop for for using these protocols. Um, so it's it's better than like the old airdrop where you, you know you just got the tokens for free, or you had to like shill the project on social media and then you got like a bounty reward. So this time you're getting these tokens for you know providing liquidity uh, on a decentralized exchange or, you know, using a lending marketplace. Um, so, you know, they are still kind of airdrops in a sense, but it's, you know, it, it it's driving usage of the platform. Um, you, you can fairly criticize that as, you know, kind of artificial, um, you know, but it, you are seeing like huge growth on some of these protocols and platforms. And, you know, liquidity mining is driving a lot of that. Um, so, you know, it's interesting, you know, incentives are always like a big thing in, in cryptocurrency. So it's been a really interesting thing to watch and participate in to some, some degree. Gotcha. So, uh, so tell me about origin. 
Um, so for those who, who don't know um, anything about it, obviously, um, we're not going to go super down in the weeds, just obviously given time constraints. But tell me about Origin um, and sort of like its, its value proper or the problem that it's trying to solve uh, is, you know, however you, however you feel suited. Sure. So Origin is, is providing a platform for peer-to-peer commerce. Um, the, the original use case that we talked about a lot was Airbnb. Um, so people talk about Airbnb like it's a peer-to-peer platform, like, oh, it's home sharing. Like I'm sharing my home with a tourist or someone visiting and, you know, it's, it's a peer-to-peer interaction. But in reality, that's not true. You know, Airbnb is a giant corporation that sits in the middle of the transaction. They take a, you know, 20% or whatever cut. Um, they can deplatform you or like, kick you off the platform for any reason. You don't really have any recourse or, or say in that. Um, so, you know, our idea, and in, you know, this was something that a lot of other smart people talked about was, you know, what if we could create a truly peer-to-peer network where people could share their homes or share their cars or, you know, just provide any goods and services without the, this middleman kind of like, you know, rent seeking, taking, you know, a cut just for, just for providing the platform. Got you. So, yeah. No, 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 go. So, um, like I always, or talked about in, in prior, um, podcasts, there's always like this general theory of how it's going to be, or the problem that you're actually going to solve. And then it sort of morphs once you, once you actually like get into the meat of it and start taking, you know, kind of contact with the enemy, so to speak. So has that, has there been an evolution process, um, for origin once you guys have started building out? And then again, I guess from your perspective, um, gone out there and actually tried to, um, you know, attract users here to, to essentially verify um, that, the, that this is something um, that can be done well, decentralized, not just well, but also well enough to be able to incentivize, um, you know, institutions, individuals um, that are on these particular platforms to, to start to maybe take a little bit of their business over to open source um, protocols like Origin. Yeah, so decentralized applications are hard to use. You know, MetaMask is hard to use. Um, there's there's a pretty high learning curve um, when you're talking about mainstream users and you know using a blockchain based application. So although our initial vision was to disrupt something like an Airbnb or a, a Craigslist, um, we did choose to target more uh, use cases that were more crypto friendly or, or things that would appeal more to um, the cryptocurrency community. Um, so we have two flagship products right now. One is the origin marketplace and you just go to shoporigin.com to see it uh, on desktop. Um, it's just a peer to peer marketplace where anyone can create a listing for any, any good or service essentially. Like you, you can put your home up for rent there. Uh, you can say you're a freelance photographer and put up your services. Uh, you can sell your, you know, your, your used snowboard or, or whatever you want to do. And it's, it's a marketplace for peer-to-peer transactions. And our second flagship product is more of um, like a merchant uh, – it's more of like a merchant experience. Like we, we call it DShop, which was short for Decentralized Shopify. Like it's an alternative to Shopify. Uh, we heard so many complaints from people who 
were operating their stores on Shopify that they charged like censorship resistant version of Shopify where people can create their own storefronts. They don't have to pay us uh, middleman fees and we can't take them down. Gotcha. Very, so that's a, that's not that big of a sort of a, of a transition. So that has been proving a little bit more, a little bit more resilient. Uh, I, I can't, I can't remember if you, if you mentioned it or not, but you're talking about how decentralized um, anything or, or experiences are typically quite onerous uh, from the user perspective. Has there been uh, any, any particular ways to try to smooth that over or are you guys still at the stage where you're, you're focused squarely on the early stage investors or not investors, but early stage adopters and that doesn't necessarily matter to them so much. Um, you just want to be able to, to, to prove out the value prop to the early stage guys and then eventually figure out the user experience whenever you start crossing the chasm a little bit more. So we've, impl we've implemented something called meta transactions. It's just essentially sponsored gas where we sponsor the gas costs on behalf of users. So they don't have to like pay, you know, these days it would be a lot, but back when we were developing it, like a few cents in gas, um, just to submit their listing or, or make an offer on, on someone's product. Um, so we, we do have meta transactions. Uh, so we, we can sponsor uh, those gas fees for people. That's a pretty big um, user experience improvement. Um, you know, we've released a mobile app, so for Android or iPhone, um, that feels pretty similar to um, a traditional mobile app. And I think that takes you more into a traditional experience than trying to use MetaMask on, a, on Chrome or something like that. Uh, but we, we have very talented product people, designers, engineers, and we're, we're trying to replicate the experience of a traditional centralized application and keep things decentralized. But there's always trade-offs and there's, you know, it's always going to be a little bit more difficult to, you know, manage your own keys, manage your cryptocurrency wallet than it is to have a traditional like email-based account where everything's hosted for you. And yeah. I, I don't know that there's a, you know, easy solution for that. Yeah. I mean, it, it falls back into, you know, sort of what you, what you're mentioning before it's, or, or sort of what we were talking about before. It's still very, very early stage. Um, so there's always going to be a, a little bit of a trade-off given we're this early um, in the game. You mentioned one thing that I just want to touch on before we, before we sort of move on um, is sponsoring uh, the gas fees. So you guys are built on Ethereum. Uh, has there, is there any, so how do you guys feel about the like the, the transition over to 2.0 and or has there been any sort of talks um, looking at adjacent, uh, adjacent chains, adjacent protocols that maybe might be a little bit smoother in terms of scalability or, or more straightforward in terms of scalability? Obviously, if that's, you know, proprietary, you can, you know, you know, choose to say that's not your business. But uh, I, I just thought it was uh, curious enough just given um, that gas, uh, that the gas fees have been so, um, prevalent given the recent spike in Ethereum price. Yeah. So we, we've been waiting for ETH 2.0 for a long time, just like everyone else. We haven't seriously considered any other blockchains. The developer community is just, you know, 99% of 
smart contract developers are building on Ethereum. Um, any blockchain, any other smart contract blockchain that wants to compete with Ethereum, they usually uh, heavily market that they're uh, EVM compatible so you can code in Solidity. Like that, that says a lot, you know. So we haven't seriously considered other blockchains, even though, you know, we're, we're not, I don't think anyone's happy with the speed and the, the congestion and the fees going on right now with Ethereum. But I think, you know, we're going to wait for ETH 2.0. Like it seems like it's finally going to come around the corner. Uh, if not this year, then next year. Um, and then we'll probably reevaluate um, next year. Got you. Uh, it seems like, so one of the more interesting things about uh, digital assets, just to take a side tangent here, is that um, like in traditional tech startups, be, having the first mover advantage, like it's nice, but it's not the end all be all. But it seems like in digital assets or cryptocurrency, given the network effects are so powerful because there's so much incentive, uh, incentive alignment, um, that first mover, like being the first mover is incredibly difficult um, to sort of displant, at least in the early stages that we've seen over the past 11 years that digital assets or cryptocurrencies have existed. Do you, do you foresee or, or do you think, I guess we're just doing a thought experiment right now, that that'll change anytime soon? Because like you said, Ethereum is the, is the first mover. And for the most part, it's not going as smoothly or, or the scalability solutions haven't been implemented as quickly as the developer community um, would like but there's really no other game in town at the, at the current moment. I just don't see feasibly how um, competitors eventually chip away at that without maybe something cataclysmic happening um, on Ethereum. Yeah, so I, I think that speaks to um, one kind of main dynamic about the cryptocurrency space right now. There's a lot of speculators and a lot of believers and a lot of enthusiasts, but there's not actually that many end users or people who are using these blockchains or using decentralized applications to get something done. So it would be like, you know, if Uber came first and every user of Uber owned like Uber stock, they're probably not going to switch to Lyft because they already own Uber stock. They have a vested interest in seeing Uber succeed. Um, so I think that's one of the dynamics that explains, you know, why community and like, uh, you know, why community is so important for cryptocurrency projects and, and different blockchains. You know, you see the passion and like the, the ar online arguments, the memes that come out of uh, these argu arguments. It's just like this whole culture. I think that's founded on uh, the fact that anyone can be a stakeholder in that network. So you, you see things, you see behaviors that are similar to like multi-level marketing or, you know, Ponzi type behavior because people think that if the thing that they bet on succeeds, um, it's going to make them rich. And so they, they want to convince everyone else to bet on that too. Um, I think there, there will be uh, a change though. When, when blockchains and cryptocurrencies are mature enough that they can support like, real mainstream applications where people don't, you know, they're just useful applications that are, happen to be running on blockchain. Like the people who are using them don't own ETH or EOS or whatever. They're just using the application because it's useful. Once that kind of user becomes 
um, more numerous than the speculator, then you'll, you'll start to see like, you know, if, if people are building huge apps that are, you know, have a business model, uh, and, and it has nothing to do with the tokens price going up, uh, people are going to switch to what works best for, for their users and what, what works best for their business model. It, I, I think it's really a question of, you know, the, the maturity of the, of the industry and like why, you know, people, why people are interested like right now. I, I think there will be our opportunity for new blockchains and new technologies to come to the forefront, but it's not going to be based off of speculative interest. It's going to be based off of, you know, real users using applications built on those blockchains. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, as a speculator, um, I definitely, um, I definitely agree that the, the long-term viability of this particular space won't be driven by individuals, um, you know, like myself, it'll be driven by uh, the developers, people, the entrepreneurs that are out there actually building something that is done, that solves a problem in a 10x better way, um, but also provides a, a more uh, user-friendly experience where exactly, just like you said, like the end user has no idea that it's built on Cosmos or built on Ethereum and necessary and doesn't necessarily give a shit. It's like the same thing whenever you book yeah. something on Airbnb, you don't know like what server they're running it on. It's like, is it on AWS or they don't care. They're just, uh, they're, they want a service and they're, and they're going there because it provides the best service for yeah. their needs. Exactly. Like if someone built a superior version of Airbnb that runs on Tron, and like no one can tell that it runs on Tron and like it's just a great app that people love to use like then it's game over you know Tron's going to have you know tens of millions of users and compared to Ethereum's you know tens of thousands got you 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 mentioned so throughout that you were talking about the power of of community and you've mentioned it before obviously it flows in to um, sort of your job description as head of business development. Um, I know you're currently based in, in Asia right now. You're, you're in Thailand, I believe Bangkok. Do you, be, is that just happenstance or do you believe that um, a little bit of the, or, or is Asia becoming more and more prevalent uh, in terms of community development? So at the beginning you talked about you're from San Francisco. San Francisco is essentially is the cradle, not just of digital assets and cryptocurrency within the US, but also sort of like, um, you know, brain power as well. It, do you feel like that's gradually or the importance of projects and community is gradually shifting more and more to Asia? I think uh, there was a period of time, maybe 2017, 2018, maybe into 2019, where most of the speculative type activity and most of the venture capital type activity by overall volume or, or value was based in Asia. So I think most projects were looking east, like how do we build our Chinese community? Like how do we do WeChat? How do we build our Korean community? Uh, I, I think uh, you know anyone who's who works in the cryptocurrency industry or ha has worked in it for a few years knew that South Korea was like a huge market, uh, 2018, 2019. I think the regulatory landscape is responsible for a lot of that. Like it's you know a lot of the early. ICOs or whatever were started in the US, but you know, relocated to like Zug in Switzerland or whatever for legal reasons. And then they started, you know, domiciling elsewhere. Uh, and then they started locking out US um, citizens or residents from being able to participate because they were scared of regulatory action. So I think that, you know, and exchanges were doing the same thing. They didn't want, um, you know, 
Americans to trade on their exchange because they were afraid of the SEC. So I think that drove a lot of activity east. And I think, you know, there, there was already a strong base, you know, like most of cryptocurrency mining is done in China. Um, so I think the, the east has always been interesting, um, especially coming from San Francisco. Like we've always looked east. Um, uh, there's there's a very very vibrant uh, cryptocurrency community in in these countries. Um, that that was a factor in why I moved to Asia, uh, but it wasn't the only factor. And I think we're kind of seeing with this new De DeFi cycle, things are kind of shifting back west a little bit. And I think uh, you're you're going to start to see China and South Korea and these other. Asian markets that were really, really active with ICOs start to pour into DeFi in the, in the coming months. It's been a little bit quiet so far. Um, and I think, you know, DeFi for all it's like hype, it's really only like, you know, a few hundred people on Twitter who are really passionate about it and they just have a really loud voice. I don't really think that there's that many people involved right now. And I think you're gonna see it like 10X in the next year or two. And a lot of that might come from Asia. Interesting. Interesting. So you think that even even with all its early stage successes that DeFi's had, there's still just a handful of people. And you think once Asia starts getting involved, that could potentially be the next sort of, you know, pump up. So I think be, because of the nature of DeFi liquidity mining and, and, you know, how some of these governance tokens are launched, it takes a lot of technical expertise to get involved. Like if you want... Uh, Wi-Fi or waifu or however people are pronouncing it these days uh, if you want those tokens like you have to use these fairly hard to understand protocols like you have to be a, a liquidity provider on on a on you know curve or, or a different protocol to get these these tokens and it's not as easy as it's not as easy as just going on Binance and buying something and you know getting a bag of, of this token so I think there, there are more barriers to entry. Um, so the community size is much smaller and much more sophisticated. Um, and I think it will probably stay that way. I don't think, you know, it might, it probably won't get as big as ICOs were because it was pretty easy to, at least post listing to buy these tokens. Maybe in, in the early days of ICOs with like gas wars and everything like that, you had to understand, you know, smart contracts to participate. Um, but it became easier and easier. Like, so, I, but we are seeing the same thing in DeFi. Like, there's all these aggregators and like user experience improvements that are coming. So, I think that will drive um, some, you know, more mainstream crypto users to DeFi. Like, I just think that, you know, the more that I talk about it, I guess that they are pretty similar. Like, <laughs> DeFi is uh, like early 2017 in ICOs, like that's where we're at right now. Like you have to have some technical expertise to participate, but it's probably gonna get uh, easier and easier. So, you know, it's probably gonna look like 2018 ICOs in six months or something like that. Yeah, I was talking to Josh Oskowitz. He, um, you know, he's well known on on Twitter and one of the lead analysts for, for Brave New Coin, uh, one of the lead new traders for them. But um, 
he was talking about how it's very, very similar. DeFi is very, very similar um, in ICO, like to the ICO boom, not just from a fundamental perspective, but also from a technical charts perspective and saying that the recent boom in Ethereum makes total sense given it's just the ICO boom uh, sort of altogether where the all the ICOs needed to get exposure to Ethereum to be able to launch their ICOs and kind of a very similar mechanism is kind of playing out um, at least anecdotally within DeFi as well. So it seems from you know, several from a few different perspectives um, that everyone is kind of expecting that DeFi, at least in its early stages, kind of has the capability um, to, to set off that next uh, sort of irrational exuberance boom that we that we saw in 2017 with ICOs. How long have you been? Um, when did you make the, the leap over to Asia? How long have you been in Bangkok? Uh, so first I went to China. Uh, it was probably middle of last year that I made my move. I went to China first, uh, I tried it out. I tried Thailand out and I decided um, primarily because of Thai boxing Muay Thai that I preferred Thailand. So I, I settled here in Bangkok after trying a, a few cities out in Thailand. So you, you said the magic word. So, um, you know, tell me about your experience in, in Muay Thai. Um, so my background is more of a wrestling and uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu background. Uh, I wrestled for two years in junior college. Uh, I did Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a while. I have like a blue belt or whatever in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I used to compete in it. Um, then I got, you know, I had a bunch of injuries from wrestling and jiu-jitsu and I kind of took some time off. And when I uh, came back from like a second back surgery, I was like looking for uh, a combat sport that would be a little bit easier on my joints. And I had dabbled in Muay Thai, uh, you know, here and there, because most jiu-jitsu schools or whatever teach everything, like MMA, Muay Thai, boxing. I dabbled in Muay Thai, uh, but I hadn't really committed to it. So, but because of circumstances, I thought, you know, now was the perfect time to, you know, really uh, focus solely on, on Muay Thai. And uh, I started training maybe a year and a half ago at, at the school in San Francisco, Wooden Man Muay Thai. Um, and then, you know, moving to Thailand, like, obviously, yeah. I'm going to train Muay Thai. It's, it's the homeland of, of Muay Thai. And there's just, you know, things are just so high level here. Like, you know, I'm getting my ass kicked by, like, 15-year-old Thai kids who are half my size every single day. Like, every gym has champions. And it, it's just, you know, you're going to, uh, like, if you're in Thailand and you're interested in combat sports, you just have to train Muay Thai. It's just a no-brainer. So. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the mecca of it, you know, and, and those those 15 year old kids, they've been fighting since they were nine years old. So they probably that kid probably has like, what, 100 fights, uh, nine, you know, 90 fights already. So it, it's an entirely different experience or it's an entirely different world over there. What uh, what gym are you training out of right now? I'm training out of FA Group in Bangkok. OK, um, I've never, I've never heard of those guys, but uh, I'm sure they've got uh, a hand, you know, a bunch of champions that they, uh, send over to the, to the local stadiums and, and stuff like that. So you've been involved for about a year. Okay. Or a year and a half, you said. Okay. I would say it's about the two year mark now, uh, since I got more serious, I had done Muay Thai, like, you know, a long time ago, but I'd never really gone like regularly and like trying, tried to practice like every week or something. I'd say like my real Muay Thai journey began two years ago. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, at the end of the day, Muay Thai in the U.S. is still 
very, very nascent, um, just, just in general, because we were one of the last countries to actually get it where real Thai champions actually came over and created a beachhead and started to teach us. But even still to this day, especially with the proliferation of mixed martial arts, um, I see a lot of Muay Thai out there that's just bullshit at the end of the day. Um, so I, I can see how you know, training in the, in the U S and then going over to Thailand, it's just an entirely different beast in and of itself. And I would have made that, that choice, uh, 100%. We were, we were looking to, to maybe do, to maybe spend a, a month or two in, in Thailand, but obviously we're Americans and we can't travel anymore. So, uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait till the world maybe normalizes a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you said it, it's, Muay Thai in Thailand and Muay Thai in, in America, they're pretty, there's some pretty significant differences. And it's something I didn't understand until I came to Thailand and started training. Um, you know, my trainer in San Francisco, you know, he was a Lumpini champion. He was a golden era legend from Thailand. So I did have like a, an authentic Thai coach, but just because of the MMA culture and like how Muay Thai is scored in America, it's scored more like kickboxing. Like, you know, it's, punches and kicks, not so much clinching and kneeing. Um, and then the gym that I go to now in Bangkok is the most famous uh, clinch and knee gym in the country. Um, so like the practice is like 50% focused on the Muay Thai clinch and, and just kneeing and elbowing. So it's just a completely different feel uh, than uh, most Muay Thai practices that I went to in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, my gym, um, so the gym that I, I started at was very, very clinch heavy. So run, you know, run by a, a, another Thai champ. So it was affiliated with Saxon and then Koban. Um, uh, Lukchai Maisenthong uh, is, I think that's how you pronounce his, his last name, but another uh, golden era guy. But yeah, we, it was very clinch heavy um, sort of gym. So I typically love that stuff. And, and that's sort of how, at least with some of our Muay Thai fighters and, and some of our MMA guys, um, that we train here in Pittsburgh, it, it's, it's not, it's not like, uh, it's not an option. Like it's obligatory. Like you have to have some sophistication. You have to know what you're doing in the clinch and you have to have good knees. So do you find like your style is adapted a little bit like that now? Do you find you're, you're, you're a little bit more of a Muay Cow type, type style? Or um, like me, I was brought up in that, in that system. So I'm good at it, but that's not my natural temperament. So like I'm naturally going to fight more like Muay for more where I'm want to do the chess match. I want to conserve energy and just kind of play that game. But if I end up in the clinch or I end up in that sort of battle, I'm not going to be happy about it, but uh, I'll, you know, I'll be fine as well. I think it's a mixture for me. You know, I'm a taller guy. I'm six foot three. So like keeping and keeping range is like something uh, that I was naturally drawn to. And because there was not a whole lot of clinching in the, in the training that I did in the U S that was more like, you know, a more femur style. Um, but um, being tall is actually really, really beneficial for a more cap clinching style too, which is something I didn't know before I started really studying, you know, Thai, Muay Thai. Um, so my style has definitely changed to like a Muay cow style. Like I, I definitely would say like knees and clinch are the strongest part of my games now by far. And I think, you know, the wrestling background helped a little bit uh, just that, you know, the feel of like moving someone's body around. It, it did help, but you have to do, you have to learn everything. Like going for underhooks is, is beneficial in, in wrestling, but in Muay Thai, not so much. So you have to learn like 
new rules, but you, you do have some feel that carries over. So I would say, yeah, my style is before was definitely not a clinch Muay Thai guy, but because of where I train, like, you know, we clinched before pads in, in my gym. That's how, you know, sacrosanct uh, clinch is in, in my gym. Like it's done before anything, everything else in, in practice. <laughs> you warm up and then you clinch. Um, yeah, I, I think the, um, A, I love that, but B, uh, wrestling and jujitsu is definitely beneficial for the, the style that you're, that you're doing right now to be, um, to shorten your learning curve within the clinch a hundred percent. Uh, it, like you said, it's not apples to apples comparison, but there's a lot of feels. There's a lot of general strength elements, like having a strong neck and, you know, in, in your case, given you've had, you know, multiple back surgeries, but having, you know, having a strong back, like that's pretty paramount, or I should say a core and a base is paramount to clinch same exact way that is paramount in wrestling. But then also whenever you're looking for some of the dumps and trips, it's, you're looking for very similar levers that you would kind of find within jujitsu as well. So, you know, my, my, uh, the, the other Muay Thai coach, uh, that we have at our, at our local gym, he always compares it to kind of like stand up grappling. So even for purple belts and above, I, I believe is what he opens it up to. They're allowed to come over to like our dedicated um, clinch classes as well. So all that stuff helps you out uh, a lot. And yes, being tall with long knees is amazing. So I'm six two, um, and I absolutely love being able to set up um, some of those some of those long knees as well. So I, I agree. I agree with that particular philosophy. It's you know, it, it's great. It's the best thing. Muay Thai is a striking and grappling art. Like that's, that's my opinion now. And I think maybe that's unusual for some listeners who have dabbled in Muay Thai in America. They see it more as like kickboxing with elbows, but I, you know, in Thailand, it's really like half grappling, half striking. That's how they train it in most gyms in Thailand. Yeah. It's, it's 100% a grappling art. So, I mean, you know, the other way around the, uh, you know, whenever I go with straight wrestlers at wrestling practice or jujitsu guys that want to wrestle, or even whenever we're doing shoot box where it's just uh, sparring with takedowns, again, like I, I'm, I'm difficult to take down because I have that general feel, but also some of those strength systems um, that are just accompanied from, from being in Muay Thai and actually practicing Muay Thai clinch uh, a lot more than, than what is normally done within within u.s schools so i, I agree with you 100 percent and and it it's easily transferable so i'm glad you're getting a chance to to really experience that out in in thailand before before we sign off um have you gotten a chance to go to any of the stadium fights i know it's been a little bit of a weird time but before then have you got a chance to to get to any of the stadium fights have you gone to any of the recent one championship fights that they put on in bangkok I didn't get to go to one and the, the fights that they're putting on now are without audience because yep. of the COVID. Yeah. Um, I did go to Raja Damnern, um, once before, um, all the COVID stuff started. So I got to see like one of the top level stadiums and all the crazy gamblers and, you know, sit, sit on the concrete steps and get the real authentic, uh, Bangkok's Muay Thai stadium experience. Um, that was really cool. Um, but yeah, now, you know, there's Muay Thai almost every day right now in Thailand, like live events. It's just, you know, people are wearing masks during the, the wide crew, during the ritual dance, and there's no audience. So it's a little bit strange. I think it's, you know, they're even changing some of the rules of Muay Thai a little bit. Like uh, they break up clinches a lot faster now. And like one of the stated reasons is because they want to minimize 
uh, close contact because of COVID, which it's a little bit strange to me since there it's a full contact sport, but um, yeah, I, I did get a chance to see live Muay Thai. Uh, I'm looking forward to being able to see it again, but right now it's just YouTube, the same that, you know, everyone outside of Thailand is getting because that's all there's available uh, due to COVID. Yeah. There's a famous Western fighter, um, that uh, female fighter that was mentioning um, was actually worried because her style is very Muay Cow in nature. And she actually had Diesel Noy, one of, you know, probably the goat of, of all time in Muay Thai, uh, come up to her gym in, in Chiang Mai and, and teach. So that's how high she keeps it in regard. But she was very, very concerned about the new rule set, given everything that's going on with COVID, to see how eventually that could persist even after COVID. Um, you know, is, is long since passed us as a gradual evolution um, to work that style potentially out of, uh, of, of stadium Muay Thai. So I, I heard about that. Hopefully that won't be something um, that continues to happen. Uh, who's your favorite? Do you have a favorite fighter right now? Um, well, I like, I like the guys from my gym, obviously. Um, Yotin FA group is a top guy um, from our gym right now. He's, the number one ranked guy at 122 pounds uh, in Thailand. Uh, he has to take fights against bigger guys all the time because people don't want to fight him at his natural weight class. Um, he's a great guy, great coach. So I'm just a fan of him as a person. I get to train with him, so he, he's probably my favorite. Uh, outside of my gym, so I don't just do a homer pick. Um, I really like some of the fighters in one. Like I like that they're signing all these like Muay Thai legends and like you're getting to see them uh, fight on like an international stage. Like Petch Morikot, like he's he just fought Yosin Thai. Like I'm a, I'm a big fan of Petch Morikot. I think he's he's a awesome fighter. To watch very technical, lots of clinch, lots of elbows. Uh, maybe a little bit different than what um, people normally think of as from from Muay Thai. Like they think kicks and, and punches, but he's more of a clinch fighter. So I like him a lot too. Yeah, I, I agree. I love watching one. Um, I, I love the fact that they're doing Muay Thai and four ounce gloves because um, I just like it. I think it makes it more exciting, but also at the same exact time, it takes away a lot of the gamesmanship um, that you see a lot of these vested schools come from. So like the more Dutch style, they're just using their gloves essentially just as straight shields. Can't do that as much. And same exact thing with the ties. They'll get sloppy with their long guard a long a lot of the time, especially whenever they're going against Western fighters, um, and they have to stay 100% on their P's and Q's. So I love the fact that um, all their Muay Thai uh, events are in their four-ounce gloves. With that, um, Nongo is, is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Muay Thai fighter out there right now. Um, you know, he knows he's, – he's not a clinch – He's not a guy that's going to drag you into the clinch and sort of drown you, but his sophistication and again, how he plays that chess match um, with feints and, and, and everything that he does. Uh, I, I really love how he fights. He just puts on a masterclass each time. And also he's one of the guys that I've mentioned before. He's actually better in the four ounce gloves in the regular, you know, Muay Thai gloves. He is a little bit more defensive. He's a little bit more content to play that the the tie style rules and just win on points. Whereas in the four ounce gloves, he's far more aggressive, um, and he's actually better in my particular opinion. Yeah, I think the rules really dictate how people fight. Um, there's a lot of subtleties in scoring stadium Muay Thai in Thailand that maybe Western people. Uh, I certainly, when I first 
went to Raja Damner and started watching like fights in Lumpini or whatever. Like I, I didn't understand why they were giving decisions the way they were. Like I was like, wait, the, the other guy was pressing forward and like rocking him with punches the whole time. And the other guy was just running away and throwing like an occasional body kick. Why did the other guy get the clear victory? So I think it takes, there's a lot of like cultural differences and rules differences. And it takes a while to like, um, learn how Thai stadium Muay Thai is scored. And I think it's probably not the most fan friendly or entertaining product for like a Western audience. So I really do think, um, one, one's rules and like their gloves and everything else. It's, it's a better package for like an international audience. And that's actually a trend that's happening in Thailand too. Like, you know, Thai stadium Muay Thai is largely like a gambling driven uh, sport in Thailand. Um, so that influences, you know, how it's scored and like the pace of a fight. But there are other smaller promotions now, like Max Muay Thai or Muay Hardcore, which are like, which reward aggression and they fight in MMA gloves just like one. So I think there's a cultural shift happening right now between like the gambling stadium uh, Muay Thai and like the more one uh, championship style Muay Thai that's becoming popular. So you're seeing like a split in the sport in Thailand right now. And it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see which you know, becomes more popular and more dominant. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, I mean, I'm a Westerner, so I, I think um, Western style is a little bit more fan friendly, a hundred percent, but also I respect tradition and I, I respect how, um, you know, traditional stadium Muay Thai is, is scored as well. But that, that in and of itself is like an entire separate topic that would take an additional sort of 30 minutes um, to jump into. Before we wrap up, is there anything um, that you want to mention that's going on uh, with Origin that you want to make sure that you kick out to, to any of the listeners before we wrap up? Um, I guess a sneak peek is um, we are considering launching like our own DeFi product. So we're not going to announce anything specific. Um, but by the time this podcast goes out, you'll probably see a blog post coming from, from me on the origin, uh, protocol medium page about, um, you know, our relationship with DeFi. So that's a, you know, potentially some pretty big news that listeners may be interested in. Awesome. Uh, I, I mean, we, we've talked about it, uh, at, at length during this podcast that we think, uh, DeFi is the next big thing. So that's super exciting news. And you heard it potentially second here, um, you know, on the podcast after, after the blog post gets put out um, from there. But Coleman, I really appreciate you taking time out of your evening um, to have a conversation uh, with us and the, and the listeners. Um, uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on, hopefully, whenever uh, things renormalize a little bit. Um, and hear about some of the new, you know, potentially the fights you have gone to, uh, in over there in Thailand. So I appreciate you. It was a, it was a great conversation. We look forward to having you back soon. Yeah. Anytime. Just, just let me know. All right. Sounds great. All right, everyone. Uh, until the next time, until the next episode, uh, we'll talk to you soon. 